From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father John Tregilio. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Monday. We're having too much fun, and the show hasn't even started yet. <laughs> Father John Tregilio is in the house. If you'd like to be part of the program, we would love to have you. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, please give us a call at one 205 271-2985, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 205 And um, you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, the aforementioned Father John Tregilio, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, Paul writes in, what is the best way, not the Apostle Paul, but a modern day Paul, (laughs) what is the best way to help homeless beggars on the street that leads them to a better life? Well, I would not uh, give them cash because in many cases they're going to use it for uh, drugs or alcohol, or they get mugged by one of the other uh, people in the area. But, uh, you know, Father Briganti and I were once uh, in London for a clergy conference, and uh, we actually went and got a guy a sandwich, and uh, he he was so grateful. Um, It was better that we give him the actual food. Um, I always bring with me some holy cards, little medals, miraculous medals, and some maybe like gift cards uh, where they could go to a local place, um, you know, fast food or whatever, and get something. But uh, I, I advise not giving people cash. But uh, also, if you have nothing, you know, uh, pray with them. Uh, you'd be surprised how many uh, homeless people uh, appreciate any act of kindness. Now, of course, there's always going to be a few who got an angle. And, uh, you know, they're going to tell you that that's not what they want. But at least you're going to uh, reach out and make an effort. Absolutely. I agree with that. 833-288-EWTN. couple of open lines still at 833-288-3986. Nathan wants to know if Adam and Eve ever existed and what must we believe about them? Well, yes, we must believe that they did exist. And um, this has been a, a, a doctrine of our faith um, from year zero, (laughs) so to speak. Um, Pope Pius XII made this very clear in an encyclical letter he wrote, Humani Generis, and said that the whole human race uh, comes from one set of human parents, Adam and Eve. And at the time when he issued that uh, encyclical, some of the scientists were were scoffing at it. Well, in early 1980s, I think it was like 1981, perhaps, uh, uh, two British scientists who were agnostic at best, maybe even atheists, uh, came with a discovery 
that all human beings who ever walked this earth can trace themselves through mitochondrial DNA to one woman. And when they made that discovery, the, the press and media said, you know, they found Eve and, you know, they were a little bummed out because, they said, well, we're not proving um, the existence of Eve, but that's exactly what they did. They found out that, yes, we're not from uh, several groups of, of um, parents, polygenism, but monogenism, one set of human parents. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Email from Jim. He said, there's a stereotype that after the Second Vatican Council, catechesis really declined. What could have caused this change from good catechesis to bad, and what can be done? Yes, I say it's more more than a stereotype. Uh, It sadly did happen. It wasn't official. This was not something that they discussed at the Second Vatican Council. The bishops did not uh, suggest this, nor did uh, Pope Paul VI or even Pope John XXIII. But here in the States and elsewhere around the world, some of the so-called illiterati, the the professionals, uh, poo-pooed the whole idea of catechesis, of using the catechetical method. And uh, they said repetition was no good, and you had to focus on experiential uh, type of religion. Well, uh, St. John Paul the Great wrote this wonderful document, Catechesi Tridende, and he also is the one who issued the Catechism of the Catholic Church in 1992, and it makes it very clear that uh, using the catechetical method of memorization, and also it's, all, it's sort of like the Socratic method, uh, question and answer, where uh, the, the catechism answers those questions that each one of us has uh, in, in our faith life. Um, Father, I'm going to go to uh, the phones here a little bit earlier than we normally do. We've got a first-time okay. caller in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, Rose Marie, and our viewer services department has sent Maro- Rose Marie our direction. And Rose Marie, welcome to the program. You're on the air with Father Tregilio. Oh, thank you. Uh, Father... I have a dilemma. Um, I am the only living parent now, and I have four children. And my youngest one was diagnosed with colon cancer. And I prayed to Jesus and asked that that be given to me. And I don't know if I had the right to do it. Well, uh, certainly you you show the depth of a mother's love. I don't know of any mother that would not want to do what you did to switch places. Uh, I had a brother who had muscular dystrophy. My mother would have gladly taken the disease rather than uh, my brother. Uh, when my other brother was killed by a drunk driver, Again, you know, she said she would have preferred to have died than to lose him. So that is the depth of a mother's love. I don't think you did anything wrong. Um, but again, it's, it's the God's decision if that takes place. And we have to remember, too, that the best thing that could happen to any human being is that, God willing, they get to heaven. How and when uh, is beyond our control. So 
if someone, one of our loved ones, uh, like my two brothers and my sister and my mom and dad now, uh, all uh, have gone before me, um, it's sad, it's painful to lose them, but the soul is immortal, and you know that's why we have masses said for the dead, that uh, if they're purgatory, that they get to heaven all the sooner. So uh, your desire, what you did, uh, was not wrong. Uh, but again, we have to always pray as Jesus did, as he did in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, Father, if possible, let this cup pass. But then he added that other key essential part, but not my will, yours be done. Does that help, Rosemary? Yes, but I need to tell Father, it seems as though Jesus has answered me. So now, what? Okay, he answered you by... Well, my son seems to be doing well, and I am not... And it happened okay. quick, quickly after I okay. prayed. Okay. Well, that that might that might be. It might be. I mean, uh, you, you may be misinterpreting what's happening, but uh, you may have gotten your request. Um, but again, uh, if you are enduring, and certainly you are, uh, the way to the cross, uh, you're doing it for uh, your son. Um, I think it's going to give you all the more encouragement to to do it because uh, you're doing it for that particular reason. But even if it's not, if and if you know, we won't know. You won't know this until you see God face to face. But bearing our our cross uh, as Jesus asked us to, to to do it with with faith, even though it's going to be much much uh, difficulty and uh, pain and suffering, but it's worth it because. We're following him up to the hill of Calvary, and if we do that, then we will also leave the empty tomb with him as well. Yeah, Rosemary, I promise you that he will provide the grace for you and whatever it is that you're going to face, and I promise you, it's my experience, that he will provide the grace for your son, uh, regardless of what his situation ends up being now. And you've done a great thing by calling us today, Rosemary, because all of our listeners are going to be praying for you and your son. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hot off the presses for the month of June from EWTN Publishing, Father Benedict answers your questions by Father Benedict Rochelle, beloved spiritual master and psychologist Father Benedict Rochelle, tackles an array of personal questions in his refreshingly frank, conversational way, addressing everything from hot-button topics in the church to ways to explain what Catholics believe to advice on increasing your devotion to our Eucharistic Lord. 
Uh, you'll learn who is really allowed to receive Holy Communion at Mass, um, how you can help restore reverence and awe at Mass, and much, much more. Father Benedict answers your questions by Father Benedict Rochelle, a new book from EWTN Publishing. It's available at EWTNRC.com, by Catholic Shop EWTNRC.com. Still two open lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next up is Marla, another first-time caller in the great state of West Virginia, listening on St. Paul Radio. Marla, you're on with Father John. Hello. My name's Marla. I'm from West... Hello? Yes. Yes, my question is, you were talking earlier about homeless, and what I'm wondering is, if we were going to give away some of those little saints' medallions to the homeless, what would be the best saints' medallions to give the homeless that would be most beneficial for them? Very good question. Uh, I I have a whole bunch of miraculous medals uh, I carry with me all the time. I don't, think you, can, I don't think you can beat the miraculous medals. Of course, uh, uh, certainly the Holy Family, uh, St. Joseph, who's the uh, patron saint of the Universal Church. Uh, he's, he's a good saint. Uh, and you could even give any of your, any one of your favorite patron saints. But miraculous medal, uh, that's tried and true. God bless you, Marla, for your efforts there in West Virginia. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Dave is another first-time caller in St. Thomas, Ontario, Canada, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Thanks for holding, Dave. Welcome to the program. Hi. Um, I'm just wondering if you need to sin. You broke up there for one second. Are you asking if polygamy is a sin? Yes, Father? Uh, Polygamy, having more than one spouse, yes, uh, uh, it is a sin, uh, because we're to, you know, especially in the Christian dispensation, uh, obviously in Old Testament times uh, that was different, but since Jesus um, raised uh, marriage to the level of a sacrament, matrimony, it's one man, one woman uh, for the rest of their uh, natural lives. So, yes, now I know... Uh, some people who come from a, a pagan background um, in other parts of the world, and then when they get baptized, become Christian. Um, you know, they may have more than one spouse, but um, they have to rectify that because once they become um, Christian, especially Catholic Christian, um, you're only supposed to have one wife or one husband. Thanks, Dave. We appreciate the call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We head next to Tobacco Road. Cindy is another first-time caller in the great state of North Carolina watching us on YouTube today. Cindy, you're on with Father Trujillo. Hi, Father. Um, I have a question. Hi, hello. Yes, go ahead. I have a... My question is, 1 Corinthians 4, 6 has been used quite a few times that I've seen um, to try to prove Sola Scriptura. Now, my sense is definitely that that's not what it means, but I'm not quite sure how to articulate it, partly because I'm not quite sure I understand it myself. I mean, I think perhaps Paul might be speaking there of the Old Testament, 
but I'm not sure if that's right. Okay. Um, so the particular question you have is with 1 Corinthians 4, 6? Yes. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll read it for you, Father. It's, okay. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and apostles for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. What you will, then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. Okay. Um, yes, I've heard people try to use that uh, passage to, um, to invalidate uh, the, the Church's um, teaching on sacred tradition. Uh, but that's not what uh, St. Paul is saying here, because he himself says, what was handed on to me, I hand on to you. Uh, that handing on, the, the, that's what is the translation of the word traditio in Latin, which means the handing on. And the Gospels and the Epistles, before um, you know, they were written as sacred text, there was the oral tradition. Uh, they were verbally spoken, especially the Gospels. The Gospel writers wrote things after the fact. Now, it's true St. Paul wrote his epistles manually, but the collection of them did not take uh, place uh, right away. So it's not that it's either or, as Pope Benedict would often say, it's both and. And so with the, it's, with the way to interpret 1 Corinthians 4, 6 is not that uh, we're against the unwritten or the oral tradition. Uh, what we're saying is we, there should be no competition so if something appears to contradict, whether it's sacred tradition or sacred scripture, we have to say, well, that can't happen, because God is the author of both. The Holy Spirit inspires both the sacred text of sacred scripture and also what is contained in sacred tradition. And therefore, as St. Augustine tells us, if there's an apparent um, conflict, the conflict is not in the text uh, or the uh, sacred tradition. The conflict is in our interpretation of that. God bless you, Cindy. Thanks so much for the call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Connie is in St. Louis, Missouri, listening on Covenant Radio. Connie, you're on with Father John. Oh, hi, Father John. I've seen you in St. Louis. You're wonderful. And I wanted, oh, to ask this, <laughs> I wanted to ask this question. Um, in fact, I wish you'd come back again. My question is about angels. I'm thinking, were all angels create, created at the beginning of time? Or when we are born, do, is our angel created along with us? Um, that's my question. I just wonder about that. Okay. Well, I'm glad you called in. Um, we believe that angels were all created at the same time, the same instant. Um, they do not exist in time as you and I do, but they don't exist in eternity like God does. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas said that angels exist in what, uh, what he called in avum, as opposed to uh, temporal time. They have a beginning, they have no end. Um, the angels were created. Uh, then, of course, we know uh, one-third of them went bad, rebelled against God, Lucifer and his... Uh, cohorts, two-thirds with uh, obviously St. Michael, Raphael, Gabriel, uh, and the rest uh, remain uh, loyal and faithful to God. Now with our guardian angels, 
um, we certainly, that's a dogma of our faith that we do, each one of us has assigned uh, a personal guardian angel. Now, do they get recycled? I don't know. <laughs> Some of the fathers of the church, uh, you know, speculate that, you know, each one of us has our own unique guardian angel. But once someone's in heaven, or God forbid, if they are in hell, uh, they don't need a guardian angel anymore. So uh, there's nothing that would violate uh, reason if we had, uh, I don't want to say recycled, <laughs> you know, if you had a, um, you know, retread <laughs> angel. But uh, there's so many angels that there's, they're never going to run out, uh, no matter how many people uh, live uh, in, in, in time. Uh, but definitely you get one at the moment of your conception. And I certainly believe that's private. You know, this is not uh, dogma or doctrine. I believe you stay with your guardian angel uh, for the rest you know, of, of the time. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. You're number one in Canada today, Father. Debbie is in Ottawa, mm. listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Debbie, you are on with Father John Tregilio. Hi, Father John. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I have a question. Um, I am a, a nurse working in um, a long-term care, memory care unit, and part of my job is to provide palliative comfort care um, at end of life to people with severe dementia. And, um, you know, as part of that practice, we do give routine medications that, you know, sometimes the elderly people, their reaction is to become sleepy or somewhat sedated as a term, uh, as a result of the effect of the medication. And, um, you know, we have always given these medications and, um, you know, like to keep the people comfortable at end of life, you know, when they're having pain or agitation. Um, and then uh, recently we had a case where after, you know, the person died, we had a staff member say to the family member, you know, well, we're giving these medications to kind of speed things up. And the family member was mortified and she told me and, I was mortified, and then it got me second-guessing, you know, like if we're giving these medications and it makes them sedated, like I never want to hasten anything. Um, we're trying to make them comfortable, and I just want to make sure that even if somebody is sleepy at end of life, um, you know, that we're not hastening anything or intending to hasten anything. Yes, I, I, I'm glad you called. Uh, my mom was a... Um, trauma nurse for 45 years, and you know I want to give you um, a shout out and all the nurses in the world for the great uh, work that that you do. Um, palliative care, as we know, um, is different. The hospice, I believe, you have to have have six months or less to live. Palliative care is when you're treating someone who's got um, you know uh, a terminal illness, but you know you don't know how long it's going to last. And obviously, it is part of our Catholic moral teaching that. We can give them as much uh, pain medication that they can tolerate as long as it does not hasten death. Um, but you can give them as much as they can tolerate. But I do know, too, that uh, when Pope John Paul issued some guidelines on palliative care, uh, one of the concerns was that you don't want them always sedated because they need to be conscious at some point so that they can uh, offer up uh, make it salvific suffering. 
but you don't want them in constant chronic pain. So uh, taking the edge off or uh, making them sedated to the point where you know they don't feel uh, the enormous pain and, and, and agony. But we don't want them uh, in an induced coma unless that's what has to be done. Um, but at no point should the medication, I know like in, even in morphine, um, if you give too much, it not only gets rid of the pain, but it slows the breathing process down, and then they can die from it. It's EWTN's Open Line, Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Wide open phone lines on Monday. 833-288-3986. Matt Gubinski is waiting to take your phone call, and we will get you straight to the air. An email here from Daniel. He says, were the communities receiving Paul's letters Catholic communities, or were they denominations? <laughs> I apologize to Daniel for chuckling at that. but Yes, well, we, it's we, about we, the question. Um, there were no Methodists, there were no uh, Lutherans or Presbyterians. If you were a Christian, you were Catholic. That was it. There, there, there was no split until the, the, the first schism in the 11th century when the Eastern Orthodox split from Rome. So up until that time, there was just one Christian church, had many different flavors and varieties, but it was still one church. It was under uh, all under the Bishop of Rome as the, um, the Roman pontiff, but also you had the, the patriarchs uh, who were in union with him. Um, so until the East-West schism, and then Martin Luther, he's the one that brought in Protestantism uh, in the 16th century. So uh, the letters that St. Paul were writing were to Catholic communities, yes. You know, it's 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 funny because when you go to you know big conferences or big events where people are exhibiting in their booths that have been leased out and people can show their wares and, and what have you, uh, as the as the final day of of the conference draws near. All of these exhibitors are just kind of looking at each other because nobody wants to be the first one to start tearing down their stuff. Uh, but as soon as the first person does, then it's just a mad rush after that. It's kind of the way it was with Martin Luther. Everybody was kind of uh, those who maybe would have a dissenting view or didn't want to be the one that that uh, strayed from the flock. But boy, once the path was once the gate was open, there was no lack of people ready to stream through right to this day, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Melissa writes in, if I give something up to God, does that mean that I no longer put any effort into it other than praying? <laughs> no. <laughs> that does, yes. Um, it's not a quid pro quo. Uh, you can turn over to God um, in the sense that we want it's His will replaces our will. Um, that's the ultimate. I mean, that's dying to self. It's St. John of the Cross. It's, uh, we just celebrated the birthday of John the Baptist. I must decrease so he can increase. But when we turn over to God, we're basically saying is, I'm letting go. Uh, I don't have to be in charge. I don't have to know all the answers. But it doesn't mean I, I've re relinquished my responsibility. And so if you've got children, especially I know parents who have children who don't go to church anymore, uh, I say, yes, place it in the God's hands. But that doesn't mean you turn your back on them. It doesn't mean you stop praying for them. It doesn't mean that you don't, uh, when the time is right, 
make a gentle suggestion of, you know, maybe it'd be good if you came back to church or something like that. But turning it over, surrendering it to God, uh, basically just means that um, you have no control over the over the end final result, but you're not gonna. It's not gonna drive you nuts that you don't have that power. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's a free telephone call anywhere in the United States and Canada. 833-288-3986. Michael asks, in Paul's letter to Timothy, what is he referring to when speaking of the quote-unquote noble confession? The noble confession. Okay. Um, do you have a citation for I me? I do not. So we'll move on to Woody, <laughs> who does have a citation. Okay. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, which says, Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does this verse mean? Okay, that beautiful um, passage there from Scripture is one that's... Uh, one of the central cores of Christology, the theology of Jesus the Christ. And uh, Jesus, we believe, it's a solemn dogma of our faith, uh, was defined at the Council of Nicaea, and then further ratified at Ephesus, and then Council of Trent, it's in the current Catechism of Catholic Church. Jesus is one divine person with two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. Uh, But he's one person. Now, in his divinity, uh, nothing is is diluted or taken away from him, nor in his humanity. He's not half and half. He's not like Mr. Spock, who's half human and half Vulcan. Jesus is not 50-50. He's 100% human, 100% divine, which is part of the mystery. But both those natures are, what we say, hypostatically united to the one divine person. So some of his divine prerogatives, for instance, um, you know, he doesn't, uh, divinity doesn't feel pain. You can't kill divinity. Um, he surrenders those aspects, okay, we, we call it kenosis, he surrenders those uh, privileges of divinity because of his sacred humanity. He obviously, he has to die on the cross, he has to uh, suffer the crucifixion, and he embraces that uh, because of, of his great love for us and wants to take on the sins of the world upon his shoulders. So the only way that he could have salvific uh, redemption is if he could feel pain and actually uh, experience death. Um, but it's not that he's pretending, because there was a docetism was a heresy where uh, Jesus just pretended to be human. Uh, it's almost like the evasion of the body snatchers type of theology. Uh, Arianism was uh, b- was another heresy that believed he wasn't truly uh, the Son of God. Uh, he was close, um, you know, like a hybrid, but not the same. No. True God, true man. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Harrison writes in, Jesus instituted the Eucharist at the Last Supper. When did the Eucharist begin to be celebrated at a daily liturgy? A daily liturgy... um... Uh, I'm not, I don't know exactly the precise moment. I know on a weekly basis, the Christians started that right off the bat on Sunday. We see this uh, certainly uh, on the road to Emmaus. Uh, Jesus was recognized at the breaking of the bread, which took place on Sunday. 
Now, the daily celebration, um, you know, there's nothing that gives us any indication that it was not done. Um, but I think the, the common practice of it being done more frequently, uh, we see once religious communities started to, to flourish and grow, uh, obviously, uh, you know, during the time of the Roman persecutions, uh, things mass was celebrated, the breaking of the bread, as they first called it, uh, the, the sacred liturgy uh, in the catacombs. Um, I think the religious orders, uh, like the uh, Augustinians and those um, religious groups, that they needed, they wanted to have a daily mass. So I don't. There's no magic date or time, but it does. I think you can probably find some documentation that it was done uh, frequently, not just once a week, but the common practice of having daily mass. I don't think until really the the church becomes legalized at the Edict of Milan in 313 A.D. 833-288 EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Matthew's watching us on YouTube, and he says, When a seminarian says to you, I do not feel worthy for this office, is it a grace or is it a red flag? <laughs> Uh, we want to hear that. <laughs> we don't want guys to, to think and presume that, uh, you know, just because they walk through the door that they're going to be ordained a priest. Uh, yes, we want them to want to be ordained, but we can never presume it. Uh, and we tell the guys, you know, you could go through, sem I went through seminary 12 years, high school seminary, college seminary, major seminary. Some of these fellows go through four, five, six, eight years uh, right now. Um, at no point do you have we call moral certitude uh, or metaphysical certitude until the actual moment the bishop puts his hands on your head and ordains you. Um, you can have a moral certitude that, yes, you firmly believe that this is what God's will is, and we ask them that. Do you really believe this is what the Lord is calling you to? But in terms of having absolute, irrevocable uh, metaphysical certitude, anything can happen, God forbid, between you know, the, the time that they're um, still a layman and they become uh, a cleric at the ordination to diaconate. Uh, so we don't want the guys to presume, but we certainly don't want them uh, confused. Uh, we have seen too many uh, types of instances where some guys were unsure, and then after they get ordained, well, maybe I made the wrong choice. No, we don't want that. Uh, we want people to say, yes, I firmly believe this is what God's calling me to, but the provision always has to be, it's contingent upon the official call. That's why the guys are not allowed to send out invitations uh, to their family members. They can say, save the date, but they cannot officially um, set anything in motion until they get the letter from the bishop that says, uh, most reverend so-and-so formally calls you uh, to holy orders. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. James is another first-time caller in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and listening on WSFI Radio. James, you're on with Father Trujillo. Hello, Father. Can you hear me? I absolutely can. Oh, great. Uh, uh, the quick question was, Father, that somewhere in the Bible it states that if you get rid of one demon... He'll come back with seven of his buddies that are seven times worse. You familiar mm -hmm. with that one, Father? Yes, yes, I am. Could you just touch on what the meaning of that is supposed <laughs> to be? Because you'd probably be better off with the one demon rather than seven <laughs> worse ones. 
yes, yes, I'm, <laughs> that, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, now, Jesus wasn't saying that this happens all the time. He just says that it sometimes happens or maybe frequently happens, um, but it's not something that we have to get uh, worried about and say, oh, uh, isn't it better to have one rather than a dozen? Uh, you know, it's almost like uh, when I had river rats <laughs> when I was a new pastor, uh, I saw one, then it ended up I had six. Um, you know, one's enough. I mean, you don't want to have more than that. But uh, in terms of what he said in Scripture, it's just to be careful, because even though we may be delivered from uh, demonic either possession or obsession, where uh, possession is when the demon's inside uh, the person themselves physically, obsession or oppression is when the demon's outside, but uh, bothering the person, uh, you know, physically on the outside or uh, mentally or emotionally. Um, again, it, it's the idea of presumption that uh, just because the house has been cleaned doesn't mean that the bugs aren't going to get in there. And I had to be vigilant because even though I got rid of the river rats, the exterminator told me, be careful, they will come back unless you are vigilant and are prepared. And I think that's what Jesus is teaching us here, is uh, even though uh, you, you got the house clean in, in, the, in that sense that you got rid of the demons, you still have to use prudence. Uh, you have to always say, yes, uh, I have to be prepared. I might be attacked again, but not in a paranoia uh, sense, not in this idea that, oh, my goodness, this is definitely going to happen. No, it's just you should be prepared within reason, but also rely and trust on, on God's providence. Thanks so much, James. We appreciate the call. We head next to the desert. Ian is a first-time caller in New Mexico watching us on YouTube. Ian, you're on with Father John. Hello, Father John. Hello. So, my question, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, so at the Epiclesis, is that the time when the bread and wine are changed into the body and blood of Christ? Because if the, if the priest is the representative at the altar of Christ, and he's asking the Holy Spirit to come down and change this, these things, accidents, to <laughs> the body and blood of Christ. Isn't that the time when it really happens? Well, we certainly believe that the epiclesis is necessary uh, for um, a valid and licit Mass. Uh, but the moment of consecration takes place when the priest says the exact words of consecration, because, again, it's said in the present tense, this is my body, not this will be, uh, or this was, it's this is. And it's at that moment when the priest says, this is my body, and then separately, this is my blood, that we say the consecration takes place. But it doesn't take place uh, independently or all by itself. It's always in the context. That's why priests are forbidden. We're forbidden to, to consecrate outside of Mass, and the Eucharistic prayer must be said in its entirety. Uh, and so we speak of it as being one, uh, one general action. But the epiclesis is important. Now, in the Eastern um, Christian tradition, they put a lot of emphasis on the epiclesis. We certainly in the West do as well. But um, we make, I mean, it was St. Thomas Aquinas and Trent that made it very clear that it's the moment of consecration uh, when the priest says uh, the words of consecration. And yet, if there's no epiclesis, you know, you, the priest's going to be in big trouble. God bless you, Ian. We appreciate the phone call. Coming up next, Cresta in the afternoon. 
uh, 4 p.m. Eastern time on many of these EWTN stations. Uh, today, Al looks at one year since the Dobbs decision. That's Crest in the afternoon, 4 p.m. Eastern time, right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is John in Hansville, right here in the great state of Sweet wow. Home, Alabama. Uh, listening on Guadalupe Radio. John, you're on with Father John. Yes, um, thank you for taking my call. <clears throat> uh, my son is a, a devout Catholic, but uh, he married a Protestant Baptist girl who does not practice her faith. She talks about um, spiritual uh, church, uh, not physical church. So should he try to have discussions with her about the Catholic Church and trying to motivate her or convert her. I tell him to um, practice his faith and not to try to convert her, but he has failed, and even me, we have failed. We try to push her a little bit. So <laughs> what should uh, should we do, Father? Yes, I would go carefully, but it's certainly a sign of love because... Uh, it's not like, uh, you know, it's not like, would you, do you like chicken or do you like beef? Uh, you know, when you go to parties or to, uh, reception dinners, they ask you, or, you know, do you want fish? Uh, it's more than just a choice. Uh, certainly, uh, we believe that, um, you know, Jesus Christ founded the Catholic faith. Uh, we have the fullness of truth. Uh, we have the sacred tradition and sacred uh, scripture. We have the fullness of grace, all seven sacraments. Um, so we believe that it's the real deal. It's the fullness um, uh, that God has to offer, and we want to share that, but we don't want to shame people into it. We don't want to coerce them. I would say, yes, the first um, way of doing this is to show that his Catholic faith means enough to him that it actually makes him a better person. But at the same time, I would not avoid at times saying, oh, you know, would you like to come with me to church? Uh, I would say to people, leave laying around the house, not handing it to them in person, but leave somewhere in the house something like, you know, the book that Father Brigenti and I wrote, Catholicism for Dummies, just leave it so they can stumble upon it, find it, and maybe read it when no one's looking. That might get the little wheel spinning around, where if you hand them uh, the catechism, hand them uh, a tract, that might not necessarily do the trick because they might feel defensive. But I would not avoid the invitation, but it has to be an invitation and not nagging someone. So every now and then, especially around the holidays, Christmas and Easter, they will come with me to church. Obviously, uh, she can't receive Holy Communion, but expose her to what the Catholic Church has to offer. And she says no, she says no. But if nobody ever invites or asks, that's something that we, you know, what, what do we do? And I've heard so many times where someone took 30, 40 years to convert, and they said, well, no one asked me. So we want to invite, but we don't want to uh, twist their arm. God bless you, John. We'll keep you in our prayers for sure. 833-288-EWTN. We can probably squeeze in another phone call at 833-288-3986. Linda would like to know, what is the Catholic response to imputation, the belief that God punished Jesus? Yeah, I mean, um, Jesus was not punished. He took on himself uh, the, the punishment for sin in that uh, because human beings sin, Adam and Eve, um, human nature went against God's will. So that's why uh, the Incarnation makes sense, because we needed the, the perfect mediator who was both God and man. 
But it wasn't that Jesus was punished because he did something. It's that his untainted, sinless human nature can then take on all the sins of all humanity, past, present, and future, and then make uh, recompense for what would happen. But it's not like he was being punished for anything he did. He took it upon himself freely and willingly. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Beth asks, when we pray to St. Raphael, is he healing us or is he bringing us healing from God? How does this work? That's a very good question. Any miraculous occurrence comes from God. Uh, the uh, intercession of the saints like Raphael for healing or St. Anthony to find a lost object, uh, they don't have powers in and of themselves that work independently. Uh, they are uh, vehicles of God's uh, grace, God's working these things. So uh, God's never out of the loop, so to speak. Um, Teresa wants to know if God's capable of evil. No, because it would contradict himself. He is goodness itself. He's the sumum bonum, supreme good. And sin is going against his, his will. So how, if he goes against his own will, it's, it's a contradiction. It's an oxymoron. I mean, he would negate himself. He would cease to exist. He's all good. He's pure good. He's holiness itself. So he can't go against himself. It's, it's impossible. Linda is in Columbus, Ohio, listening on St. Gabriel Radio today. Linda, you're on with Father Trujillo. Hi, Father. I was, I was wondering if someone has passed, if you're saying prayers for them, should they be in purgatory? Does that help them to get into heaven faster? And also, if you say prayers now, should you be in purgatory? Would that help you? Should you go to pur- should you go purgatory? Would that help you to get into heaven faster? Does it? Is there like a time limit or? Uh, yeah, um, yeah. First of all, um, always. We believe prayers for the poor souls in purgatory are efficacious. We just don't know in what way. Um, we don't want people to think that it's purely temporal. I know in some of the old uh, Recolta uh, books, you know, they, they, they saw a distinction in the um, a partial indulgence, 100 days, 300 days. That did not mean ever that that was time off of their sentence, as some people think it meant. It just meant whatever the spiritual equivalence of doing 300 days penance, that's what it meant. But we think of, and you know, if someone goes to jail and they say, well, you're going to get paroled early because of good behavior, that's not what we're talking about here. So the souls in purgatory can benefit all the prayers, especially masses. That's why it's a wonderful practice to have masses offered up for the deceased, but also every day to pray for them. And when they get out, we don't know, because purgatory is not necessarily a place. It's a state, a state of cleansing. So we don't want it to limit it to just, you know, you're in sort of some prison, some spiritual jail. You're not in hell and then get paroled. Uh, But it's a state of cleansing. And you can hasten in the sense, help somebody uh, finish their purgatory sooner by offering prayers and, you you know, doing things, getting an indulgence and asking it to be applied to the souls in purgatory. 
Thank you, Linda. We appreciate that call. Mesa is watching us on YouTube and wants to know, I always thought purposely breaking the one-hour fast before receiving Holy Communion and receiving communion anyway was of grave matter, but a theologian I know says it's not grave matter, is it? <laughs> it is. If you, if you know that that's something you're not supposed to do and you just very intentionally say, I defy the Church from telling me that I need to do that, that that's grave matter. Now, if you forgot, if your calculations were wrong, if you were expecting a long homily and the priest, for whatever reason, was a little too short and uh, you didn't get your hour in, okay, that, that was not uh, full premeditated. But if you go in and saying, I will not uh, abstain for an hour before uh, receiving Holy Communion, that would be grave matter because it's defiance. It's, it's, it's grave disobedience. But you have to be in complete a consciousness of what's all going on and full deliberation, you willingly do this. And uh, Diane says, why does Jesus use the word woman to address his mother? It is not an insult uh, any more than, like, when I go down to visit my friends there in Alabama where EWTN broadcasts, um, many people still to this day refer to their mom and dad as yes ma'am and yes sir. Coming from the north, that would be uh, you know, my mom would, would step back. What are you talking? Why are you calling me that? But that's a sign of respect and love. In the same way, when Jesus refers to Mary as woman, uh, it's a sign of respect and it's affirmation of of her role in salvation history. Because in Genesis three, the the prophecy is that I'll put enmity between you and the woman. When God uh, um, condemns the serpent, the woman is Mary, and Mary is also the woman uh, at the wedding feast of Cana. And she's the woman uh, at the foot of the cross. Woman, behold your son. And she's the woman clothed with the sun, with the moon at her feet. That's in the book of Revelation. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? Benedicat vos omnipotent Deus, Pater, et Filius, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. This is Jack Williams. Thanks so much for joining us at the beginning of another week of EWTN's Open Line. Uh, tomorrow on Open Line Tuesday, Father Wade Menezes talking faith, family, and fellowship. Father Mitch on Wednesday talking church teaching, ancient languages, scripture, and the like. Father Brian Milady on Thursday and our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan, on Friday. Until we get together next time, God bless.